All right. Well, everyone, please be seated, okay? <laughs> um, I love being here at Grace Church. It's a joy for me, and uh, I've never been able to preach outside in the courtyard, so I feel like George Whitfield here a little bit coming to Philadelphia. So thank you for coming uh, for this. And I've been asked if I would speak on the life of John Calvin. Um, this past Friday, July the 10th, was the birthday of John Calvin. He was born in 1509, July the 10th. And there are certain dates that uh, are really red-letter dates for the church because of what took place on that date in history. And July the 10th is really one of those dates. Um, I had the rare privilege of actually standing in Calvin's pulpit and preaching in Calvin's pulpit on exactly the 500-year anniversary of his birth. Um, I was there in Geneva at St. Paris Cathedral um, in his pulpit on July the 10th, uh, 2009. And I have grown to love what God did in the life of this man. There's probably no one who is more misunderstood than the man John Calvin. Um, he, you either love him or you don't like him, but those who don't like him do not know him, because if you knew the life that this man lived, you, you would be extraordinarily impressed. Um, it has been well said that to study the history of Western civilization without a knowledge of John Calvin is to read history with one eye shut. Uh, in other words, you do not understand the movements of the last five centuries without understanding what took place in Geneva through the life of John Calvin. And as I speak of John Calvin, I really am speaking of what God did in the life of John Calvin, what the grace of God and the gifting of God did in and through this man but it is absolutely extraordinary. He is one of the truly all-time great men of history. He was a world-class theologian. He was a renowned teacher. He stands out really as probably the most prolific expositor who ever lived. He was a valiant reformer, and he was estimated to be the greatest theologian since the apostles in the first century. Those are extraordinary statements. I just got an amen from the parking lot there. Um, John Murray, the esteemed professor at Westminster Seminary, said, Calvin was the exegete of the Reformation and in the first rank of biblical exegetes of all time, close quote. He was unusually gifted at taking a passage of Scripture and breaking it down in the original languages and analyzing that text and interpreting that text in, in the clearest fashion. Uh, Philip Schaff has written an eight-volume on the history of the Christian church. In volume eight, which is the Swiss Reformation, Schaff has said this, Calvin was an exegetical genius of the first order. His commentaries are unsurpassed for originality, depth, perspicuity, soundness, and permanent value. 
John Calvin is the king of commentators. Uh, John Broadus, who was uh, the first professor of homiletics at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote, Calvin gave the ablest, soundest, clearest expositions of Scripture that have been seen for a thousand years. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, who was the lion of Princeton in the 19th century when Princeton was the bastion of conservative Reformed theology, said no man ever had a profounder view of God than did Calvin. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, the greatest of the preachers, said John Calvin profounded propounded truth more clearly than any man who ever breathed, knew more Scripture and exclaimed it more clearly than any man who ever lived. Spurgeon went on to say, among all those born of women, there has not risen a greater than John Calvin. No age before him ever produced his equal. And no age afterwards has seen his rival. Uh, David Hall has called him the man of the millennium, meaning he, over the last thousand years, uh, there is one influential figure who rises above the other names, and it would be John Calvin. So it is a name that we recognize, but who was John Calvin. Who who was the man, John Calvin? I think it would be very helpful for us this morning to think not so much about his theology, which I would love to speak to you on, but to think about the life of John Calvin. I know when John MacArthur was in Russia, one of the first trips that he went to Russia, there was such an anti-bias against John Calvin by the Armenian Baptist preachers. Uh, there were about a thousand pastors gathered together in a Q&A session, and the first question from the microphone was really a diatribe against John Calvin. And John MacArthur, rather than walk through his theology, actually walked through his life. And the pastors began, began to line up and repent publicly that they would have attacked such a valiant warrior for the truth as John Calvin. So, I want to give us 10 headings to help us walk through a kind of a 10-point outline, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to get through all of these, but, but that's my goal and desire. So, the first heading would just be Catholic son. John Calvin was born into a Catholic family in 1509, March the 10th, in Noyon, France, which is about 60 miles northeast of Paris. He was born 26 years after Martin Luther. So that would make him a second-generation reformer. The Reformation took basically three generations to unfold and to uh, expand its influence, and John Calvin would be a second-generation reformer. His father worked for the Catholic Church. His father was, a finan- was the financial administrator 
for the Catholic Bishop of Noyon, which was a big deal because the Catholic Church owned massive wealth and massive real estate and massive buildings in, in some countries more so than the government owned and more so than the elite wealthy would own. And so to be the financial administrator of uh, the church there at Noyon, which, which uh, encompassed a large reason, you were a man of enormous influence because of your financial access to money and property. And John Calvin's father raised John, young John, to be a Catholic priest. Uh, his mother was deeply steeped in Catholicism and would take her young son, Jean Calvin, uh, on pilgrimages to see relics. And so he was deeply steeped in papacy. All of the reformers grew up as Catholics. And so John Calvin was no exception. And so he was raised to be a Catholic priest. At age 11, his father secured a chaplaincy for his young son. And John Calvin began receiving a salary at age 11 from the Catholic Church in preparation that one day he would come back and be a priest in the Catholic Church. So his path was already marked out as, as a young man. At age 14, he entered the University of Paris. Uh, that was common to enter university at that age. But the University of Paris was the elite university of the world. The University of Paris was the greatest university in Europe, and John Calvin received a world-class education uh, as he entered. He studied Latin and logic and philosophy and rhetoric and earned his master's degree, and all of this was to train his mind for one day when he would be converted and he would unleash that intellectual brilliance upon the Word of God. Just another footnote, all of the Reformers were educated at the greatest universities of the world. They graduated from Oxford and Cambridge and St. Andrews, and they were professors such as in the University of Wittenberg, etc., etc. And so there was a high value that was placed for the leaders to be trained at the highest level. Well, Calvin's father, Gerard, came into conflict with the bishop of Noyon, and he resigned. And when he resigned, he pulled John out of this path by which he would be headed to be a Catholic priest. One thing you need to understand about John uh, Calvin is he was very submissive. Uh, he was very submissive to his father, he was very submissive to other mentors around him. And so whatever idea that we would have about John Calvin, he was submissive to the sovereignty of God, to the lordship of Christ once he was converted, but he was also submissive to those authorities who were over him. And so his father literally just redirects his life into law, the study of law. And so having graduated from the University of Paris... Uh, John Calvin then attends the universities of Orleans and Borges, where he graduated with a law degree in 1532, and there he became profoundly trained in 
analytical thinking and persuasive argument. And he was nicknamed by his classmates as the accusative case because he could take one side of an argument and he knew how to mount uh, an argument and to win his case. Well, while just before he graduated from law school, his father died, 1531, which freed him from his father's heavy hand upon his life, the shadow that his father cast across his path. And once his father died and once he graduated from law school, he decided he wanted to study and pursue his real love, which was classical literature. And so John Calvin returned to the University of Paris to receive another degree, and this would be in classical literature. So this was the beginning of this young man's life, raised in a Catholic home, uh, trained and educated at the finest universities in France and in, and in Europe, uh, a law degree, a classical literature degree. And this leads us now to the second main heading, which is devoted believer. In either the year 1533 or 1534, so that would make Calvin either 24 or 25 years of age, he was suddenly arrested by the grace of God. Um, he had had exposure to Reformed truth through his Greek professor. Now, here's one thing we need to understand. The Reformation began as essentially a college movement. It was a university movement, and there's something about university students who are open to thinking. Once someone reaches the age of 45, I've found out, if you're, if you're not reformed by the time you're 45, you're going to suffer from a category, uh, a hardening of the categories. And so you're not going to be able to think. Well, college students are used to taking uh, textbooks, analyzing, thinking, and so it becomes fertile ground for the Reformation. And so John Calvin is converted while he is in college, and I have his testimony here that I, that I want to read to you. The only time John Calvin really talked about himself was in his introductory preface to his commentary on the Psalms. And he talked about how the Psalms is an anatomy of the soul, how it, it opens up the soul. And while he's talking about that, he reflects on his own past and his own conversion. And this one paragraph is the only paragraph that we have that tells us about his conversion. I want to read it to you. To this pursuit of the study of law... I endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of my Father, but God. Sounds like Ephesians 2, verse 4. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, praise God for the buts in the Bible. <laughs> and we can say, praise God for the buts in our personal testimonies. But God, by the secret guidance of His providence. In other words, Calvin wasn't even looking to be converted. He wasn't looking for the gospel. It, it was the invisible hand of God. It was the secret providence of God 
that laid hold of him, and he thought of himself really much like the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. But God, by the secret guidance of his providence at length, gave a different direction to my course. God just intervened and rerouted the course of his life. He said, at first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery to be easily extracted from so profound an abyss of mire, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. What he is saying here is he was so entangled and sinking in the muddy mire of Catholicism that the only way he could have been rescued was for God to dramatically intervene in his life and literally just lay hold of him by the lapels and just extract him out of the heresies and errors of Catholicism. And he says, that's what God did in my life. And he gives all glory to God for this. A sudden conversion subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame which was more hardened, listen to this, which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. What he is saying is he had been so indoctrinated in the superstitions of Catholicism that given his young age, you would have thought he was twice his age. He was so hardened by the, by the dogma of the Pope. So he says, having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was, listen to these next two words, immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I yet pursued them with less ardor, close quote. Once I came to meet the risen Christ, everything else began to evaporate. He says, I continued in my studies, but they became less and less important, and the study of the Word of God became more and more important. And John Calvin was, he said, immediately inflamed with new affections and new desires for the God of grace. So John Calvin is converted at age 24 or 25. This leads to the third heading, a brilliant teacher. He immediately began to teach the Word of God. Having never been to seminary, having never been to Bible college, having only been steeped in Roman Catholicism, He unleashed this brilliant mind and this excellent education upon the Holy Scriptures. And his giftedness in teaching began to immediately be seen. There was a new rector who was appointed over the University of Paris, Nicholas Kopp, and he gave a speech in his inauguration 
that gave great glory to God and made reference to the Reformation movement that is now spreading. And it is much believed that John Calvin actually wrote much of this speech for Nicholas Kopp. It made Calvin a marked man. And he was forced to flee from Paris in the middle of the night for fear of his own life. Again, much like the Apostle Paul having to escape for his own life on his missionary journeys. And he goes to the estate of a, of a wealthy man, Louise du Tillet. And, and Calvin, because of his brilliance, because of his father's background, Calvin was actually very well connected with people of means and education and knowledge. And he ends up uh, on the estate of this wealthy man who had a very extensive theological library. And John Calvin sat in this man's library and read the church fathers, those Christian leaders in the second, third, fourth, and early part of the fifth century, and began to read other theologians. And Calvin was amassing a body of knowledge regarding the Scripture as he is walking with giants theological giants in his reading, and he travels from there to Basel, Switzerland. And there in Basel, Switzerland, he was there from 1534 to 1536, John Calvin astonishingly writes the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He's only been a Christian for a little over a year. It would become not only his magnum opus, but it would be the magnum opus of the Reformation, and arguably the greatest Christian book that has ever been written, rivaled only by Pilgrim's Progress. It would be the single most important book to be written during the Reformation period and took a place of superiority over even Luther's bondage of the will. It was written when he was 25 or 26 years of age and published when he was 27 years of age. And there is no explanation for this except but God. But God had singled him out to be his instrument, to be used to be the architect, the theological architect of the Reformation. Martin Luther was of a totally different personality. Martin Luther was brilliant. He had a doctorate in theology. He was a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg. He translated the Bible into the German language. I mean, Martin Luther was a stunningly brilliant man, but Martin Luther was like a spewing volcano, just firing out uh, strong assertions. What was needed was for someone to come in behind Luther Luther was like the icebreaker ship going first to bust up the frozen tundra of a thousand years. John Calvin, by the sovereign providence of God, was ordained by God to come in now behind Luther and begin to systematize and begin to organize and bring together into a body of divinity a systematic theology, which is essentially what the Institutes of the Christian Religion is. 
It was written under most unusual circumstances. It was written because Calvin was a Frenchman, and those who were Reformed in France, and France is staunchly Catholic. There are basically two rules in France. One, you will be Catholic. Number two, you cannot leave. Um, The Huguenots in France are some of the most valiant believers history has ever known. And they were suffering persecution in France for their Reformed convictions. And when I say Reformed convictions, I mean biblical convictions. And so John Calvin writes the Institutes with a preface to the King of France, Francis I. And I I wish I had time to read this preface. It, It is masterfully laid out. That, O King... If you only knew what our French Huguenot brothers believed, you would stop the persecution. I believe you to be an honorable king. And he appeals to the king to read what he has written in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And if you would only come to a knowledge of true Christianity, you would step in and you would stop the persecution. That's why the Institutes were written. It would undergo eventually five editions, and it would be expanded multiple times. Um, I will read, uh, I, I will tell you more about that later. But in his 20s, Calvin is already marked out as the architect of Reformed theology, though he himself is somewhat unknown. This leads to the next heading, um, number three. Is the next one number three? No, four, thank you. Number four, faithful pastor, 1536. And I I, I love to just throw this in. It's the same year William Tyndale was martyred. And it's as if when one man steps off the stage, God always has next man up. William Tyndale is hung by the neck, burned at the stake, and blown up with gunpowder all at once. God has John Calvin standing in the wings. And John Calvin begins the first of his three pastorates. You no doubt know the story. He was traveling from France to Strasbourg, which was in southwest Germany at the time, where he planned to study as a quiet scholar for the rest of his life. Uh, Calvin put it this way. He said, I always desired the shade, meaning to be out of the spotlight. He just wanted a back corner in a library where he could just read and write and, and study. I mean, that, that, that was John Calvin. And so there was a local war on the border between Francis I, to whom he had addressed the institutes, and Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. And there was a roadblock because of this battle on the border And so it prevented him from continuing to be able to travel down this road to Strasbourg, and John Calvin was rerouted for what he thought would be just the night. His rerouting takes him to Geneva, 
He had no plans to go to Geneva. He had no thought of going to Geneva. He had no desire to go to Geneva. And there he checks into an inn, and he is having dinner at the inn. And someone looks across the way from another table and recognizes him. You're the author of the Institutes. And they tell a fiery red-headed evangelist named William Farrell, who had already come to Geneva, and he was a fireball of a preacher, an open-air preacher, and was doing all that he could to turn Geneva from being a Catholic town to a Protestant Reformed town. But he needed help. And he, need some, he needed someone who could be a Bible teacher. He needed someone who could be an expositor. He needed someone who could take these new believers and, and mature them and grow them. And so they told William Farrell that the author of the Institutes of the Christian Religion is here. He's here tonight. He's right here in this tavern. So William Farrell, this is one of the most providential meetings in all of church history. William Farrell goes over to Calvin, introduces himself, explains what's going on here in Geneva, and says to him, you must stay and be our teacher and teach us the scripture and theology. And John Calvin said, oh, no, 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 no. I, I'm headed to Strasbourg. Uh, I'm just an author. I'm just a writer. I'm looking for a very inconspicuous place to serve the Lord. And William Farrell put a finger in his face, and William Farrell said, then the curse of God be upon you. Calvin was startled. And he believed it was the voice of God. He believed that, it, that God had placed William Farrell there providentially, and that this was an open door that he must go through. And so John Calvin stayed. He began as a Bible teacher, and his gifting was so obvious that within a short period of time, they made him their pastor, where he would stand in the pulpit and preach. Now, Geneva as a city is still radically Catholic. And Calvin begins to preach, and he identifies that there are three marks of a true church, because as the Reformation is going on, the question is raised, so what is a true church? Is the Catholic church a true church? Uh, what, what are the marks of a true church? And so Calvin defines the three marks of a true church. Number one, there is the exposition of the Word of God. Number two, there is the administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And number three, and this is what got him in trouble, the exercise of church discipline, that there would be a closed back door, that you would be expected to live in accordance to your confession of faith. Well, this did not sit well with the established families in Geneva. And you can imagine after decades and centuries of intermarrying and people, et cetera, et cetera, everybody's related. And you put one person out of the church, you, you, you've, you've put half the city out. 
emotionally. And so John Calvin only lasted for two years as pastor of Geneva. And he was given an apple and a roadmap and sent out of town. And you know what? In many ways, Calvin was only too happy to be run out of town. He never wanted to be there to begin with. He just wanted a library someplace where he could go study and, and be by himself. And, and, and so he goes to Strasbourg, where he was originally going to begin with. And he goes to Strasbourg, and there is a man there by the name of Martin Busser, B-U-C-E-R. And Busser becomes something of a spiritual mentor, father figure to Calvin. And Calvin says to Busser, I just want to sit in the back of the library again and write, expand my institutes. And Busser goes, that's not God's will for your life. God loves you, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. You're going to be the pastor of the French-speaking congregation that have escaped for their life out of France. It's a congregation of about 500 French-speaking Huguenots who were exiles, had come to Strasbourg. So one more time, Calvin is submissive. He was submissive to his father. He was submissive to William Farrell. Now he's submissive to Martin Busser. It doesn't bow his back. He says, all right, then I will be your pastor. And John Calvin is there for three years, from 1538 to 1541. It is there in Strasbourg that he first preaches through the book of Romans. He preaches through 1 Corinthians. He meets a widow... Idolette de Boer, whom he marries, and she becomes his wife. He edits the Institutes. There are five editions to the Institutes. The second edition is probably the one you would want to read. It is very warm and pastoral. As he continues to add, he continues to bulk it up until its final form, it's 1559 or 1560. And it, it's just a massive tome. You need to put it on wheels to carry it around. But it's the second edition. While Calvin is there in Strasbourg, the Catholic Church tries to take back over the church in Geneva. Now that Calvin's not there. The city fathers of Geneva have no way of rebuttaling what the... Catholic takeover is trying to be. So what the city fathers of Geneva, who just ran John Calvin out of town, now appealed to Calvin in Strasbourg, would you answer the Catholic Church for us? So John Calvin writes a treatise, which is the greatest treatise on the Reformation to be written, as he presents to one of the leading figures in the Catholic Church, what the Reformation is all about, and it's printed, distributed, and the people of Geneva uh, would read this, and Calvin's entire appeal is that the Catholic Church degrades the glory of God. 
that the Catholic Church elevates the glory of man, elevates Mary, elevates the saints, elevates the Pope, elevates the saints, elevates the priests. And with every elevation of man, there, there, there is a degrading of the glory of God. There is a robbing God of His singular glory. And where Martin Luther attacked the Catholic Church on justification by faith, sola fide, Calvin went to a higher level than just one isolated doctrine. He went to the supreme truth of the universe. He went to soli deo gloria. He went to the glory of God. And he saw that the false gospel of Rome is false, one, because of its improper exegesis, but on a far grander manner, it is a frontal assault on the glory of God, that man can contribute to his own salvation, that, that, man can make, that man's achievement can in any way merit his right standing before God. It is an elevation of man, and it is an attack on the glory of God. But when the city fathers of Geneva read this, they, they, they came to their carnal senses. We, we need this young man back. So they sent him a letter to return to Geneva to be their pastor. And John Calvin wrote to William Farrell, the evangelist, and said, I would, quote, I would rather die a thousand deaths than to take the cross of this calling. In other words, I would rather die a thousand deaths than to go back to Geneva. They've already killed me once. And Martin Busser, his spiritual mentor, said, you must go back. Calvin said, yes, sir. And against, really, his own desires, and against his own, really, his own will, much like Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, not what I will, but what you will, John Calvin leaves the most peaceful time of his life in Strasbourg, where he'd become happily married, where he was pastoring a congregation that loved him and he returns to Geneva. The year is 1541. And there he would remain the rest of his life for the next 23 years. As he returns to Geneva, he steps back into the pulpit on the first Sunday, and he opens his Bible to exactly the next verse that he would have preached three and a half years earlier. And it was a statement to the congregation, we will be committed to the Word of God. And we will be committed to consecutive sequential exposition through books in the Bible. It, 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 it was a loving line in the sand that was drawn by John Calvin. The date was September 13th, 1541, and he now begins the years that we know him the, the best or the most by. The next 23 years can be divided out into two segments. The first 
is years of opposition, 1541 to 1555. The next 14 years were years of opposition for Calvin with his own church, with the city fathers, with the citizens of Geneva. They wanted him back, but they didn't want him back. They wanted him back for certain things, but they didn't want him for the full counsel of God. The second half of his pastorate was 1555 to 1564, and those last nine years were the mountain peak years for John Calvin. And for pastors who are going through difficult times in their local ministry, John Calvin is a great example of perseverance and endurance through difficult times. In fact, during those years, Calvin was not even allowed to be a citizen of Geneva. He was referred to as, quote, that Frenchman, close quote, quote, with a sense of disdain. Uh, During this opposition, he felt many different parties, cliques within the city and within the church that were against him. One of those was known as the Patriots. Uh, The Patriots were the oldest, most influential families of Geneva, deeply steeped in their traditions that were without biblical uh, support and often in opposition to biblical support. And perhaps the greatest opposition he received was from the Libertines. The Libertines were another um, pocket of people in the church and in the city who were antinomians. They were known as Libertarians in that no law will be over us, especially the law of God. We will do whatever we want to do. No one will tell us what to do, certainly not the preacher but, but not even God. We, we will do what we want to do. And so they lived in profligate immorality. They slept together. They, they lived together. Everyone in town knew it. So John Calvin exercised church discipline on them. And John Calvin put them out of the church. And John Calvin denied them coming to the Lord's table. Well, the Libertines wouldn't stand for this. And there is one famous encounter, I have the etching of it in my study, in which Calvin is in his pulpit. And this pulpit in Geneva is an incredible pulpit. I mean, there is a massive column in the middle of the building. And when, the, when saint Paris Cathedral became a Protestant Reformed house of worship, I mean, this is a massive Catholic edifice. It's just spectacular. It's so gorgeous. They had to put the pulpit back into the middle of the building because the Catholic Church had moved the pulpit over to the side so that the altar would be here to take Mass. Well, the place to put it is to attach it to this massive stone pillar in the middle, and you literally enter the pulpit by going up a spiral staircase that wraps around the the, the, this column. So Calvin is up in the pulpit, literally. You mount, the, you ascend the pulpit. And the, Lord, the elements for the Lord's table are 
beneath the pulpit, and this is a huge cathedral, huge. And as it comes time to take the Lord's Supper, the back doors of the church swing open. And these doors are taller than from here to the top of this uh, canvas. It, it, it is, they, they are massive doors, huge. And when those doors swing open, it's almost like the wall swings open. And the Libertines come marching down the center of the worship center. And they come marching up to the Lord's table. And Calvin, who is a little Frenchman, he, he bolts out of that pulpit. And he comes down the spiral staircase and he stands in front of the Lord's table, putting himself between the Lord's table and the Libertines in front of the whole church. And they say, we are here to take the Lord's Supper, and you will service the Lord's Supper. And Calvin says, these hands will never give what is holy to those who are unholy. They pull their swords, and Calvin bears his chest. He's willing to risk his life to protect the purity of the church and to protect the purity of taking the Lord's Supper. And Calvin, with great boldness, backs down the Libertines. And they turn around and walk back out in front of the watching eyes of the jaw-dropped congregation. They understand that their pastor believes this and that they need to believe this. And there is a gradual transformation of the church. Now, this leads to number five, and I realize I'm running out of time here. I just want you to know that I know that. Number five, renowned expositor. When I was in seminary, I always thought of John Calvin as simply the theologian. John Calvin simply the author of the Institutes. John Calvin simply the elder statesman of Christianity. John Calvin the polemicist. I had no idea of John Calvin the expositor until I agreed to write a book on John Calvin's preaching ministry, which sent me into gathering together a war chest of books and materials and to study the preaching ministry of John Calvin. He is the quintessential expositor of the 2,000 years of the church. And when I dedicated my book on John Calvin's expository preaching, the name of it is The Expository Genius of John Calvin, I dedicated it to John MacArthur because there is no one else I could think of who even begins to exemplify what Calvin did. Calvin preached through entire books in the Bible sequentially, verse by verse. He would start in chapter 1, verse 1, and as is the practice here, just preach consecutively. No truth is passed over. No doctrine is untaught. No sin is left unconfronted. And as Calvin preaches through 
books in the Bible. And again, now this is only in the 23-year window of time. You need to understand this. Calvin preached every Sunday morning and Sunday night, but he also preached every Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, and Friday morning to a standing room only congregation every other week. So from Sunday to Sunday, he would preach 10 sermons. He prioritized the New Testament. He would preach it on Sunday. He, had a, he preached the Old Testament Monday through Friday. And what he kind of didn't calculate was there are more days during the week than there are Sundays in a week. So he ends up preaching a massive amount of the Old Testament just because he's doing that Monday through Friday. So I'm going to, I have compiled the list of the books in the Bible and how many sermons he preached from that book. And I'm going to read this list only to impress upon you how unwaveringly committed he was to expository preaching. He died preaching a harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 63 sermons, Acts, 189 consecutive sermons, 1 Corinthians, 110 consecutive sermons, 2 Corinthians, 66, Galatians, 43, Ephesians, 48. And these sermons through Ephesians were so powerful that when John Knox was on his deathbed, he had his wife read to him Calvin's sermons from Ephesians and just read him into glory with Calvin's preaching in his ear through his wife's voice reading them. First and Second Thessalonians, 46 expositions. First Timothy, 55. Second Timothy, 31. Titus, 17. Genesis, 123 sermons. Deuteronomy, 201 consecutive expositions. Judges was a short story. We don't have the number. 1 Samuel, 107. 2 Samuel, 87. 1 Kings, various numbers. We don't have the number. And let me just tell you, the reason we don't have the number is there was a paper shortage at the beginning of the 19th century in Geneva. And they went into the library of Geneva, and Calvin was so little thought of at that time, they began to pull his sermon manuscripts off the shelf and sell the paper to the merchants of Geneva who would turn it over and use it to write out a bill of sales. So we've lost countless sermons. Another thing to tell you before I finish reading this, stenography taking shorthand was virtually invented on the front pew of Geneva. As the congregation pooled their resources and hired a Frenchman to sit on the front pew and take down every word that Calvin said. That's why we have uh, the transcripts of his sermons, and you can read his sermons. Um, And they're so easy to read. They're not dense and thick. They're very pastoral, and and they, 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 they have life in them. All right, back to this list. Job, 159 consecutive sermons. They they must have thought they were in the Great Tribulation at that point. Individual Psalms, we only have 72, but we know he preached more than that. Psalm 119 alone, 22 sermons. Isaiah, are you ready? 353. 
Jeremiah 91, Lamentations 25, Ezekiel 175, Daniel 47, Hosea 65, Joel 17, Amos 43, Obadiah 5, Jonah 6, Micah 28. Sounds like a homeschool convention, doesn't it? Nahum, we don't have the number. Zephaniah 17. The man was a expository juggernaut. He was relentless in all of this within 23 years of his time there in Geneva, while at the same time he would walk across the street to the the auditorium and there lecture to what is the equivalent of his seminary students and preach through and, and teach through major swaths of the Old Testament. And there would be four or five students who took down every word that Calvin said, and they would meet after class, combine their notes, and could recompile virtually a word-for-word transcript from his lectures. He, he, He was so industrious. Calvin the preacher. I stood in his pulpit on a 500 year anniversary of his, uh, of his birth, on the 400 year anniversary of his birth in 1909. Emel uh, uh, Gay, who was his foremost biographer at that time, says this about Calvin and preaching. That is the Calvin who seems to me to be the real Calvin, the authentic Calvin, the one who explains all the others. Calvin the preacher of Geneva, molding by his words the spirit of the Reformed of the 16th century. James Montgomery Boyce, you you know James Montgomery Boyce, wrote this, Calvin had no weapon but the Bible. Calvin preached from the Bible every day, and under the power of that preaching, the city began to be transformed. As the people of Geneva acquired knowledge of God's Word and were changed by it, the city became, as John Knox called it later, a new Jerusalem, from which the gospel spread to the rest of Europe, England, and the new world. So much I would love to tell you about the preaching of of John Calvin. In, In my book, The Expository Genius of John Calvin, I've identified 35 distinguishing marks of the preaching of John Calvin. You can look at it in the bookstore. Let me give you one more, and I I, I know I need to wrap this up. And thank you for being in the sun and shielding your eyes and and all of that. Number six, prolific author. Calvin was an extraordinary author of massive proportions. Theodore Beza, who uh, who was his successor, called him, quote, that Herculean man, close quote. We can begin with his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was first edited or printed when he was 27 years of age. Um, The first edition was 111 pages, six large chapters. It would undergo these expansions, and it grew from 85,000 words to almost half a million words. There are some 3,000 biblical references. It was his literary masterpiece. And William Cunningham, who was the renowned church historian, church theologian 
in Scotland said the first edition produced at that early age contained the substance of the whole system of doctrine which has been commonly associated with his name. Uh, second, there are his Bible commentaries, and, and I have his set of Bible commentaries, and it just takes several shelves uh, on, on the bookshelf. It's called the Commentary on the Bible. It's the largest Bible commentary ever written by a single man, 45 volumes of over 400 pages each, much of it based on his lectures, much, much of it based on, from his preaching, but he has written verse-by-verse commentaries in this set on 24 of the 39 books of the Old Testament and the entirety of the New Testament, except for 2nd and 3rd John and Revelation. So he covered 75% of the entire Bible in his, in his commentary set, which is intensely expositional, exegetical, insightful, warm, pastoral, powerful, scholarly. Then there is pulpit sermons. He preached some 4,000 sermons during his few years in Geneva. There is personal letters. Banner of Truth has reprinted his letters in something like six volumes, and and that's only the tip of the iceberg, as he wrote some 4,000 letters that are printed in 11 large volumes. And he is writing to everyone from the King of England to kings of other countries to some of his students who are about to be martyred in France to to letters to pastors to encourage them. Uh, He also wrote doctrinal treatises. He he, he wrote a a catechism. He wrote a confession of faith. He wrote a devotional. He wrote the book of church order for how the Reformed church should be set up and function. And when you take all of Calvin's writings, and remember now, there's no laptop, there's no computer, there's no typist. His collected writings fill... It, 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 well, let me just put it this way. The Corpus Reformandum is the, the body of writings of the Reformation. It's a 101-volume set. Calvin's writings comprise 59 of the 101-volume set, 60% of the collected works of the Reformation, and there's another 12 volumes uh, that are supplemented as well. That's 71 encyclopedic volumes in only 28 years. It's just totally staggering the productivity. Calvin did the work of 20 men. He did the work of 30 men. Um, Number seven, he was a zealous reformer. He reformed the church. I'm just going to read you one quote, and when I say reformer, that means he is the one who put in place elder leadership in the church. He is the one who brought down the hierarchy of Rome and the Pope and the cardinals and the bishops and put in place a plurality of elders over a local congregation. That is traced back to John Calvin. It would be what John Knox would take to Scotland to birth the Presbyterian church and elder leadership there. And and Calvin is the one who set up with elders and deacons and pastors and teachers in the church I don't have time to go into all that, but listen to what Calvin said when he returned back to Geneva on how he will set up the church according to biblical structure. 
If you desire to have me for your pastor, correct the disorder of your lives. If you have with, if you have with sincerity recalled me from my exile, banish your debaucheries. I consider the principal enemies of the gospel to be not the Pope of Rome, nor heretics, nor seducers, nor tyrants, but bad Christians. Of what use is a dead faith? Anyway, goes on and on as he re-implements church discipline. Uh, number eight, a visionary educator. I just need to tell you this, that, that John Calvin establishes the Geneva Academy, which becomes the University of Geneva, which is there to this day. Uh, it trained men for the ministry. It trained professionals such as doctors and lawyers. Um, it was so effective and successful that Thomas Jefferson wanted to buy the University of Geneva and move it to Virginia. Library and all. And when Geneva said no, in its place, he founded the University of Virginia. That's how the University of Virginia began. Of course, Jefferson was the architect of uh, the buildings. It was only because he couldn't buy the University of Geneva. He saw it as the model university. It's founded by Calvin. I don't have time to go into much more. Uh, number nine, a vibrant church planter. For those who think that Calvin was not evangelistic or missions-minded, obviously do not know John Calvin. John Calvin sent out so many missionaries at danger to their own life that they chose not to record all the names of the men that they sent out for fear that their anonymity would be exposed. But it's almost like an underground pipeline going back into France, and Calvin almost captured control of France with the churches that were being planted by his graduates from his auditorium or from his seminary. More than 1,300 missionaries, all trained in Geneva, entered France, and they became came 10% of the population of France. And the only reason it was stopped was the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, which is one of the grisliest days in all of church history, where there was a plot to literally massacre thousands of the Huguenots by the French government. The last thing I'm going to tell you, indomitable worker. John Calvin possessed a tireless energy and drive for God. He, his entire life was a challenge and difficult. Even in his pastorate there in Geneva, he was verbally abused. People named their dogs Calvin. He was called Cain. On one occasion, there were 50 to 60 rounds of gunfire shot over his house trying to intimidate him to leave town. They threatened to throw him into Lake Geneva. He was run out of Geneva once. He was often insulted as he would walk from his house to the church. They threatened him in the pulpit. They tried to take over the Lord's Supper, as I told you about. He was saluted in the streets of Geneva as a heretic. They hated him worse than the Pope. They abhorred the very word discipline. 
They resorted to personal indignities. Every device of of intimidation known, he suffered the, the death of his wife and the death of the only son she gave him while he was there in Geneva. He endured many physical ailments of colic, spitting blood, gout, hemorrhoids, kidney stones, excruciating migraine headaches, ulcers, pulmonary tuberculosis. At the end of his ministry, he became an invalid, and the elders came to his house with a chair. They helped pick him up and put him in the chair, and the elders with poles carried him in this chair to church so that he could continue to preach. It's known as Calvin's chair. And in a letter that he wrote to Bullinger right before he died, he talks about the pain in my side, my my lungs are full of phlegm, my breathing is difficult and short, there's a kidney stone in my bladder, uh, an ulcer in my hemorrhoids, Uh, I suffer from gout, etc., etc. And through all of these difficulties, the great demands of ministry, endless discipline of writing, constant pressures of leadership, persistent opposition of foes, painful loss and death of wife and son, physical attacks upon his life, many illnesses of his body. He was absolutely indefatigable. He was relentless as he continued to preach every day and to lecture three times a week and to write his commentaries and all the rest. As he came to the end of his life. He wrote his last will and testament. In the name of God, I, John Calvin, servant of the Word of God in the Church of Geneva, thank God that He has shown not only mercy towards me, but has suffered me in all my sins and weaknesses, but what is more, that He has made me a partaker of His grace to serve Him through my work. I confess to live and die in this faith which He has given to me, inasmuch as I have no other hope or refuge than His predestination upon which my entire salvation is grounded. I embrace the grace which He has offered me in our Lord Jesus Christ and accept the merits of His suffering and dying, that through them all my sins are buried. And I humbly beg Him to wash me and cleanse me with the blood of our great Redeemer, so that I, when I shall appear before His face, may bear His likeness. I declare that I endeavored to teach His Word undefiled and to expound Holy Scripture faithfully according to the measure of grace which He has given me." On May 27th, 1564, at the age of only 54, John Calvin graduated to glory. His successor, John Beza, concluded with this, having been a spectator of his conduct for 16 years, I have given a faithful account both of his life and of his death, and I can now declare that in him all men may see a beautiful example of Christian character, an example which is as easy to slander as it is difficult to imitate. Calvin's last words on his deathbed were, 
How long, O Lord, how long? As he died quoting the very scripture that he preached. The legacy that has come down through the centuries from this one life is jaw-dropping. It has been well said that the true founding father of America is John Calvin, because it was his ideologies, it was his theology, it was his worldview that became the foundation upon which the colonies were founded. Philip Schaff says, the earliest and most influential settlers of the United States were Calvinists, the Puritans of England, the Presbyterians of Scotland and Ireland, the Huguenots of France, the Reformed of Holland were all Calvinists, and they brought with them the ruling theology to New England. Harvard, Yale, Brown, Rutgers, Dartmouth, Princeton were all established as Reformed schools to train Reformed preachers of the Word of God. The Great Awakening was championed by Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, who were Calvinists to the T. The early Americans called the American Revolutionary War the Presbyterian War for reasons I don't have time to go into. But when George Washington went to New York City, the Episcopalians went out and greeted the British general. The Presbyterians and the Baptists went out and greeted George Washington. They understood what they were fighting for, for religious freedom. So in many ways, and I wish I've given an entire lecture on just the, the legacy of John Calvin. I gave it once at a Ligonier conference. Nobody even says amen at, an, at a Ligonier conference. At the end of this lecture on the legacy of John Calvin, they gave a standing ovation. Not for me, but for the legacy of John Calvin. It is an extraordinary story as his Calvinistic work ethic, as his commitment to capital investment and the free enterprise system, as his commitment to public education, as his commitment to a high theology became really the initial dominant force in the colonies. When the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, and they pulled out their Bible. It was a Geneva Bible. And it was the Bible of choice in the early colonies, long before the King James Version um, became accepted. As Calvin, as the Geneva Bible had his study notes in the margin of that Bible. In fact, the King James Version was, was designed to, to try to replace the Geneva Bible, because in the Geneva Bible, Calvin said, we owe greater allegiance to God than to man or the government. So, I'll bring this to a conclusion. You're so kind to sit through the hot sun and, and to listen, but there is great value in studying great men of church history and great women of church history. 
I never, have never had one person disciple me, but in my study of church history, I've had many giants disciple me and influence my worldview and my approach to the Christian life. You would be very well served to pick out certain Christian biographies and to read and to see how they walked in their following of the Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes like a Hebrews 11 brought up to date. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Martin Luther. By faith, John Calvin. By faith, John MacArthur. There is great value in studying biographies. So, on this two days after his birthday, may we give glory to God for his grace that he bestows upon servants to be ministers of blessing to us. I'll just close with a word of prayer, and then I'll dismiss you. Father, thank you so much for this time that we have spent together. Thank you for what you did in the life of this man over 500 years ago. And I pray that you would raise up, even out of the Master's Seminary, the Master's University, that you'd raise up out of Grace Community Church the next generation of Reformers and Puritans who would have great impact upon this world. Father, we pray this with grateful hearts, knowing that you always have the next generation ready to step into the fray. In Jesus' name, amen.